afternoon, everybody. Good morning, I should say. It is May 14th. It is a beautiful day in the Northeast. I don't know where you are, but it's looking nice here. Uh, today, we are joined for podcast li uh, live here on Facebook, uh, Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA. And joining me today is my co-host, Dr. Martin Marin. Uh, good morning, Marty. How's that Peloton doing behind you? Oh, it's that, that, first of all, good morning. Hello. Hello to everybody tuning in as well. Yeah, the Peloton, as you can probably see in the background, I'm working at home today, has saved me, of course, as it did probably many people during this pandemic, allowed me to get some of that stress out at home. Um, and so uh, I love it for that reason. <laughs> Fantastic. Glad to hear it. So um, today on Tales from the Heart, I wanted to do a couple of little housekeeping items, and then we're going to dive into medical management men. <laughs> Um, so number one, uh, this podcast would not be possible if not for the sponsorship of uh, the program by BMS, uh, Myocardia, Cytokinetic, Vitae, and um, the support of the HCMA membership and donors. So I just wanted to give a shout out and say thank you for that. Um, big announcement coming from the HCMA, huge announcement. Hopefully within the next 12 to 14 days, we are going to have a brand new website. It's going to be what we're calling the, the starting version. There will be a point two and point three coming up soon. We will be adding more features as the next six months progress, but I can't wait to show it off because it looks awesome. It's way easier to navigate. You'll find your centers of excellence more easily. You'll have lots of opportunities to communicate with your big hearted friends. So um, stay tuned to the HCMA for some exciting announcements about that. So that being said, okay, Marty, we're going to talk medicine. We're going to talk drug therapy. And I thought we'd start this off with the basics. The go-to drug, the first stop for most patients with HCM is to be told that they should be on a beta blocker. Can you start off with just explaining to us what beta blockers are and why it seems to be the go-to first try for HCM patients? Sure, sure. So beta blockers, um, which have been around for a long time, probably since the 1960s, um, and are used in a variety of different circumstances in different cardiac diseases, um, including as a treatment for hypertension, were actually applied to HCM by Dr. Brunwald, um, one of the most famous cardiologists of our time, many listening may recognize that name. He, he actually brought beta blockers over to the United States. I think this is in the 60s or even late 50s from Europe where they were just being developed to apply them to HCM. So there is a long history uh, of using beta blockers in HCM and in the, the and the reason that's the case is that beta blockers uh, have as a, one of their effects decreasing kind of decreasing the work of the heart kind of slows it down a little bit that's why heart rate can slow down blood pressure can can decrease and also the the work of the heart what we call the contractility can decrease uh, as well so beta blockers are kind of a form of what we call in a technical term, a negative inotrope, negative inotrope. All that means is that, is that it decreases how forceful the heart can kind of come together. 
and we're leveraging you know that uh, aspect of the drug to help lower the gradient in patients with obstructive HCM. Okay, that's the idea: is to lower the gradient through its negative inotropic properties. And by lowering the gradient, as you know, and as we've discussed before on the podcast, if anything that lowers the gradient, drugs or other invasive treatments, will make patients feel better because you're decreasing the pressure in the heart. Okay. So typically, where do you start somebody in terms of dosage on beta blockers? So, so I think just to, you know, just to be clear, let's first answer that by just starting with the obstructive patients, you know, that's the way I just started, but, you know, to be clear, there's some difference in opinion here and different styles for the non-obstructives, you know, and we can come to this in a minute. I typically start treatment with calcium channel blockers as my first drug, but for obstructives, I think there's pretty much universal agreement that beta blockers are the first drug to treat, to try in patients that have symptoms due to obstruction. And I'll just make a, a comment that, you know, we have and do see quite a number of patients with obstructive HCM who are in fact asymptomatic. They have no, no symptoms at all, um, at least by history. And uh, in those situations, we may not recommend any drug treatment. But for symptomatic, it's reasonable to start with beta blockers. They're safe. Generally, they have a pretty good safety profile, meaning side effects are, are fairly minimum. They, they can, if they occur, include uh, fatigue and, and sometimes sexual dysfunction for men, but otherwise they're pretty well tolerated um, and they can improve how patients feel by lowering the gradient. So I'm going to dive into that a little bit more in a second, sure. but let's talk about calcium channel blockers. What are okay. they and when are they the first choice and when do they yeah. come in second? Yep. So different class of drugs now, calcium channel blockers, completely different mechanism of action than beta blockers. Calcium channel blockers, again, are a class of drugs, by the way, that are, that are used. These drugs are used in all kinds of different forms of cardiovascular disease for different reasons, including as well as lowering blood pressure too. There are also antihypertensive properties to them. And, you know, they alter, they alter the, the calcium handling in the heart muscle um, and, and vasculature. And, and that can help also kind of decrease or increase the, 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 the filling time, you know, the diastole, the filling time of the heart. And that can help kind of improve the, the overall performance of the heart by improving filling. If you improve filling, you may be able to lower gradient as well that way, but also by improving filling of blood and also blood flow to the heart muscle, you can improve symptoms related to uh, you know what we call diastolic dysfunction, you know which is the, one of the main reasons that the non-obstructive patients get symptoms. Okay, so my preference is to start with calcium channel blockers because they seem to have a little bit better chance of making a non-obstructive patient feel better because of their mechanism of action. And also they're very, they even have a better safety profile or side effect profile than beta blockers because they don't have that fatiguing issue or sexual dysfunction associated with them. 
Uh, occasionally they cause constipation, but, but, but that's really about it. So they're really safe. And when is there time to use them together? Occasionally, I think there's a ra there, could, there could be a rationale or reason to use beta blocker and calcium channel blocker together in a, a, a symptomatic obstructive patient in whom one of the drugs like beta blockers, for example, at first didn't work enough or wasn't effective enough. You could add on calcium channel blockers, but when you do that, you have to be a little bit careful and thoughtful because both of those together can you know, have the effect of, you know, one driving down the heart rates, you know, potentially too low, which can then cause symptoms or can decrease blood pressure too low, which can also cause symptoms as well. So you have to be a little thoughtful in terms of just safety if you're using both together, but they can be used together to try to achieve greater efficacy if one drug didn't work initially. Okay, so I've been on beta blockers. I've been on calcium channel blockers. I've gone through a lot of these, these lists. Right. Um, they can make you tired. Yep. They can make it difficult to know whether your underlying disease is making you symptomatic or your medications are making you symptomatic. Right. Is there any tricks that you use when patients are concerned about fatigue or just feeling lethargic to manage medicines better to get rid of those symptoms? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, it can be challenging sometimes to, to know, you know, what really is responsible for, you know, symptoms. Both the drugs like beta blockers and HCM can make patients feel tired, as you know. Um, so I think, you know, what we do is we work with patients to try to, you know, determine if, if they come to us on you know, high doses of beta blocker, whether the beta blocker is responsible for fatigue, we may decrease the dosage. We may stop it and see um, if the if side effects go away. If we're starting a beta blocker for the first time, we'll of course you know, talk about and caution patients that if they feel that they're getting tired after initiation of the drug, then that's not acceptable and to let us know, you know, because obviously that really implicates the drug. So there are a number of different things we can do um, that fall into the category of sort of trial and error, determine if it's drug or disease causing the, the side effects, essentially. There's a question here before we move on to other meds, but I do want to address this first. If somebody has a myectomy, do you reduce or eliminate these agents specifically? Right. So, so it's a great, great question. Um, I'll tell you how we do it. And, and I think this is pr fairly reflective of a lot of other centers too. Um, look, when you have a myectomy, one of the potential advantages is that we tell patients that they have the opportunity to come off drugs for HCM. That's pretty powerful, particularly given the fact that for many patients that have myectomies, they're, they're young, in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. They don't particularly want to go back on drug every day um, for the convenience issue, for side effect issues, for all kinds of issues. I completely get that. So one of the advantages, obviously, it's not the reason to do the myectomy, but one of the major you know, benefits of surgery in, in committing to that and going through it is the opportunity to come off drugs. And that's always our goal. With that said, I'll tell you that sometimes the experience is that sometimes even after myectomy, 
some patients will still, I'll say, feel a little bit better on a low dose of beta blocker or calcium channel blocker. Maybe that's because the, the drug at that point is decreasing extra beats, PVCs, what we call PVCs or APCs, extra beats. And so there could be, a, or, or they need it for blood pressure. So there could be other reasons that, that a patient could still need to take a drug, but the goal is to come off. Thank you. Okay, so to continue with our theme of medical management, beyond beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, we can also use something called disopyramide or the brand name Norpace controlled release. Can you discuss when that is used? Sure. What it is? Yeah, so, so Norpace um, is a drug that has also been around for a long time. So it's not new. You know, we're talking about since the 80s, at least 80s or 90s for HCM, so a long time. Um, and so we have a, a fairly good understanding and appreciation of its potential benefits and, and, and limitations for that reason. It is a drug that falls into a category of antiarrhythmic drugs. So it's an antiarrhythmic developed originally to suppress abnormal arrhythmias, not in HCM, but just in any different cardiovascular diseases. It was then leveraged, its strengths, its other strengths were leveraged to apply to HCM because Norpace, because of the way that it works, can also have negative, coming back to this term, negative inotrope again. It decreases the forceful contraction of the heart muscle. It decreases that by about 5%. So, so many listening may be familiar with number, you know, the, the number of the ejection fraction. Okay, that's kind of a rough estimate of contractility. Okay, in HCM, the average ejection fraction is like sixty-five percent. Normal is anywhere from fifty percent or higher. Okay? HCM is, is is a little bit higher than, than the average patient population, uh, general population in terms of, if, of heart contractility. So we have EFs in, in HCM that are about 65% in average. So Norpace will decrease that by about 5%, 5 to 8%. And by doing that, by leveraging that strength uh, or, or mechanism of, of Norpace, not its antiarrhythmic properties, but its negative inotropic properties, you can lower the gradient again. So we're back to that idea of decreasing contractility, will decrease gradient and therefore make patients feel better. Okay. okay. So I, I want to stick on this for a minute because everybody wants to treat obstruction. Yeah. <laughs> everybody wants to find the next thing to, to treat obstruction and we're good with yeah. that. Um, but why is it that Norpace isn't used more often? What are the downsides to Norpace? Yes, yeah, so I'll start by saying, you know, I have to say, you know, over now, you know, 20 years or so, you know, I, 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 I think, uh, you know, that, that I've grown even more comfortable with the drug myself. Um, I think, to be honest, and I know there are other experts that would agree with this, there's been probably an over-exaggeration about the negative aspects of Norpace, okay? And what those have been, largely, are two things, okay? Side effects of the drug in terms of mostly nuance, uh, nuisance issues like dry eyes, dry mouth, and sometimes in men that have prostate issues, you know, urinary retention. I'm not minimizing those as issues. Of course, there are 
They're, they can be frustrating if they occur, but they go away when you stop the drug. And, and the number of patients that that occurs actually in that take norepace is small. It's a small number. Right. Again, a number that's been over-exaggerated, I think, to some degree over the years um, for reasons I don't really quite understand. But nevertheless, the reality is that that happens at very rare, it's a small number that, that gets side effects to norepace. Um, and it's a small number that can have the other issue, which is that it sometimes can make one of the intervals on the EKG too long, which then could increase the risk of an abnormal rhythm. That's called QT prolongation. That happens also very rarely too. So, so those are your main side effects. The other issue I'll just mention before you jump back in is that, you know, that, that what we call long-term efficacy. So the ability of Norpace to satisfactorily control symptoms over many, many, many years is limited. So sometimes patients will get improvement that they really like, you know, somewhere usually on the order of 30 to 50%, but that improvement can start to wane a little bit over time, okay, or go away. Um, and so, you know, we, we therefore look and then become candidates maybe at that point for other treatments. So we don't always look at it as a um, option, drug option that will satisfactorily control symptoms forever in a patient. It might, but it, but statistically it, it, it probably won't. Okay. So those are the sort of the pros and cons to, to, to Norpace. Okay. So we have beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and Norpace. I have to say that that is probably 75, 80% of what I hear every day from patients that this is the most common drugs that they're taking. There are some other drugs. I don't want to, we're not going to take a deep dive on every single agent that could possibly be used, but I want to talk a little bit about what's on the market right now for things like managing chest pain. So we have renolazine, but we're not using that that much, are we? Yeah. So renolazine is a, a different kind of drug um, that was developed actually to treat, initially to treat angina from coronary artery disease. So drug that would be available to help patients that had bad blockages manage their chest pain from that as well. Um, and so we've considered it sometimes in helping HCM patients that have chest pain, not from blockages of the, of the arteries on top of the heart, um, the coronary arteries, but sometimes we have issues related to in, ineffective blood supply at the, in arteries in the the muscle of the heart, the tissue level. And so renolazine can, can maybe help with blood flow there. And so we selectively can use it there and have used it there. Um, the data, the studies have not been convincing to show that it, you know, that it provides that kind of benefit to a large population of HCM patients. But the message here, and this is my, you know, strong um, consideration is that, you know, there's a lot of individual variability in HCM. So even though renolazine may not have worked for a large group of HCM patients, that doesn't mean that selectively for an individual patient, it may not, it, it could help. And so we do try it still in that kind of way. All right. So that's where a drug like renolazine can, 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 can come up and be, be discussed with patients. Okay. So once we pass basic HCM management, 
basic obstructive management, attempting to get at chest pain, now we may have problems with atrial fibrillation. Now, interestingly, one of the drugs we already talked about can maybe be used a little bit in atrial fibrillation, but then we, so there's a little bit of norpace there, uh, specifically if somebody's got obstruction and AFib. And then there's sodalol. What's sodalol? So, so I'm gonna, just to backdrop one second, I'll just, just for the purposes of chest pain, because it is such an important issue and it can frustrate okay. patients, yeah, so much. Um, we talked about, you know, the possibility of using a drug like granolazine. I will say that we've actually had the most success in improving chest pain in HCM, mostly in non-obstructive HCM, with really high doses of verapamil, a calcium channel blocker. So I'd have to say over 20 years, that's really been our, our, our most effective way at helping patients with chest discomfort. And I mean, you know, sometimes you may have to use really high doses because the muscle is so thick. Um, so just to kind of put that out there. So high dose verapamil, granolazine are two options, okay, for chest pain. Fantastic. Thank you. Sodalol is, is, as you said, another drug that we use primarily to treat atrial fibrillation. So it's an antiarrhythmic. So its relevance for HCM really only comes up in patients with HCM who are developed or have developed symptomatic, usually symptomatic atrial fibrillation as a drug that could be considered in those patients to suppress or decrease the chance of going from regular rhythm back to atrial fibrillation. Okay. It's more effective at doing that in, in, in suppressing the development of atrial fibrillation than Norpace is. Again, Norpace is an antiarrhythmic like Sotolol, but it's a weaker one in terms of AFib, okay? Sotolol doesn't do anything to lower the gradient in HCM because Sotolol is not a negative inotrope like Norpace is. So Sotolol is really used therefore in HCM only for AFib suppression. We're really glad we have smart doctors around to help figure all this stuff out because it, <laughs> there's all these different mechanisms and it's how do we use this and when do we use that? Um, and we, we still have a lot to go through. Okay, so. But it makes the case again for what you've been doing such an incredible job of, which is uh, not only just educating the patients on your end, but also the, the development of uh, HCM centers, you know, of excellence where this kind of uh, expertise is concentrated so that patients can really you know, get the kind of good information and recommendations that they deserve to have um, in the U.S. and hopefully someday globally. So absolutely. Hey, we made some attempts last night with sending a support letter to, to Sweden to get them online uh, with Center of Excellence Care Modeling. So uh, lots coming up, but I digress. So, okay, we've gone over the basics. I want to go back to beta blockers for just a moment because under that class, there are a number of different agents. There's metropolol, and then there's topral name brand, and there's atenolol and natalol, and then the name brand versions of everything, and bisoprolol. What is the magic trick, if there is one, to find the right beta blocker for the right person? Yeah, I think, I think the different 
people would probably have different opinions about how to answer that. I, I think, you know, the way that we've looked at it is, you know, they, they, there's a, they're generally, um, general consistency, generally speaking, in terms of the degree of efficacy or side effects across the different beta blockers for this indication. So I, I don't personally think there's that big a distinction, personally, between different types of beta blockers, okay? Now, with that said, like there always can be exceptions to, to rules. And so I think I'll just throw out there that, you, you, you know, the answer is that you have to um, ask your doctor whether or not, you know, for, for you, there is, there is a rationale to look at a different type of beta blocker. There are some that are more selective in how they work and they can therefore be less fatiguing for example, or have less effect on heart rate than other beta blockers. So with that said, there are some differences that could be helpful for an individual patient, but I think you have to really discuss that with your provider. Thank you. I knew, I know that question was coming up from the community soon. Okay. So beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, norepace, sodalol. Let's talk for a minute about amiodarone. Occasionally that comes up. Some people are on it short-term after surgery these days. Sure. Um, what is amiodarone and why is it wonderful and why is it scary? Yep. So amiodarone, you know, again, kind of continuing on the theme of antiarrhythmic drugs is an antiarrhythmic drug. It's in a little bit different class than sodalol or norpes. So it's a little different in its composition, but it's an antiarrhythmic and therefore it is used in HCM to suppress, again, atrial fibrillation. It doesn't do anything to lower the gradient or impact other issues of HCM. It's really used to mitigate or suppress atrial fibrillation. And it is without a doubt, the most effective oral drug to, to accomplish that goal, okay? Not just in HCM, but I think in generally across all, a lot of different cardiovascular diseases in patients that develop atrial fibrillation. Amiodarone is probably our most effective drug at suppressing AF, atrial fibrillation. It comes at a cost though, unfortunately. And that cost is side effects that are more pronounced, potentially more uh, impactful than those that would come with sodalol or norpace because they, they involve organ damage, potentially. The three organs that are affected primarily by amiodarone are the eyes, the lungs and the thyroid, okay? So, you know, that means then, you know, you got highly effective, but you got high risk, you know, and that risk largely is determined by the dosing and the duration of the drug that a patient's taking, okay? So that's why very short-term use of amiodarone. And I think the most common situation that you raised is, 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 is comp that, that we see is we're using it after surgery to suppress atrial fibrillation following surgery, which is just a common you know, thing, right? So two months or three months, which is the usual dose of amiodarone after surgery is a really a short period of time that really doesn't you know, you know, really create a problem with these other organs. It's more with patients that have atrial fibrillation that are you know, considering long-term use of the drug, okay? Over years, years, months to years, where these issues can arise and therefore, that gets into complicated situations of what other options could be available besides amiodarone, 
you know, obviously there are ways to, 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 to watch closely for damage to these organs with lab tests and so forth, but it's complicated. And that's why, you know, I think you have to, it's why amiodarone in general is not a great option for this disease because most patients are young that develop atrial fibrillation. So I have to pause for a moment and explain why amiodarone is a trigger word for me. Sure. Um, many people do not know that my sister, Lori, who passed away in 1995, didn't necessarily die from HCM. She died from amio, uh, amiodarone toxicity, um, which dropped her potassium, which did serious damage to her lungs, messed up her thyroid. Um, and when she dropped her potassium out, she had her cardiac arrest. Um, this was being managed locally by small town docs who really didn't understand how potent this drug could be and things got out of control. Um, if you're going to be on amniodarone, work with a specialist and make sure that you're being followed up, you're getting all your lab works. Um, I don't think the HCMA would exist if not for amniodarone in a strange way. Um, but uh, it's, I always tell people it's a wonderful drug if it doesn't kill you. So you've got to manage it well. And if you manage it well, you know, everything has side effects and consequences, but it can be done safely. So Lori is a cautionary tale. She's not the only story. Okay. So those are the basic classes of management. Once we get to heart failure, there's another group of drugs. And I'm going to save that conversation for another day. So we'll talk about ACE, ARBs, diuretics, and we'll go down that path in a future talk. The basic medical management we've gone over. But where are we going next? There are four companies I want to talk about and four drugs that are in pathway to discovery. So this is the part where everybody wants to have an answer and wants to try something right away. Everything we're going to talk about from here on out is not available to the public yet, may never be available, is in clinical trials. And we need all of you to participate in clinical trials to help us get to answers. The drug furthest along in the process is Mavicamptin by Myocardia Bristol-Myers Squibb. Can you talk a little bit about what the hopes are for Mavicamptin and what we still don't know about Mavicamptin? So I think I'll start just by, you know, putting into frame of reference, you know, for those, you know, listening, an important point here, which is that all the drugs that we've just talked about um, are old, you know, and, 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 and we're not specifically developed for HCM. They're used for the disease They're by leveraging their potential strengths. But that means that there really hadn't been, or really uh, for almost 30 years, probably 20 years or so, um, a, a, new, a new therapy for HCM. So the idea that we're having now a conversation about a number of different new drugs that are emerging for HCM is itself probably worthy of a podcast itself to, to really emphasize the idea that we are in a new era in a way for this disease, right? That the drug companies, um, which for a long time were not interested in any way in this disease. They were ignored. Completely, completely, we have to be honest, we're completely ignored for the good part of several decades. Have now for a number of reasons, taken an interest in HCM and HCM patients, the first time ever, okay? 
And, and as a result of that, there have been a number of initiatives that have now matured and we are now in a position to talk about the, the idea of applying potentially new therapies to obstructive and non-obstructive HCM. So that's a, that's, you know, an enormous difference than, you know, what we would be talking about 10 years ago. Mavicampton, you know, is the farthest along, as you said, and it's a drug that was developed, you know, has been developed over several years by first a company in San Francisco called Myocardia, which was then bought recently by Bristol-Myers Squibb. And Mavicampton, we know, uh, you know, we know what we know about it, which is limited in terms of there haven't been a ton of HCM patients that have taken it. Where we are is that the Mavicampton has been first evaluated. Let me tell you, so Mavicampton, to make it sort of simple for everyone, is a very strong negative inotropic drug. So we're back to that word again and concept again that Mavicampton, through a different action mechanism of action than Norpace or beta blockers, can decrease the contractility of the heart. It lowers the ejection fraction okay? to achieve the goal of getting rid of or obliterating or decreasing the outflow gradient. And again, anything that decreases significantly the outflow gradient in obstructive ATM will make patients feel better. Okay? So Mavicampton does that um, through a unique mechanism uh, where it decreases the interaction of certain parts of the heart muscle apparatus to decrease contractility. And so it's been looked at as a way of improving symptoms in obstructive HCM patients first. And that's the farthest along in terms of what we know, which is the completion several months ago of a phase three trial looking at Mavicampton in terms of efficacy for that goal and safety, okay? And that trial was called, these trials in cardiology all have names or acronyms associated with them. Um, so it's not uncommon to have a, a, a name like Explorer HCM as a name of a trial. And that was the trial that Lisa was just talking about where Mavicampton was looked at in obstructive HCM. So let me, let me, let me pause there for a second, perhaps. Do you want to jump into about any of that right now or you want to keep going? So I'll just point out that yes, we were ignored for many, many, many decades. Yep. And now there is approaching unbridled enthusiasm. <laughs> and it's, it's nice to see the attention, um, but I've seen phenomena like this before in HCM where everybody gets excited about the thing and I wanna temper expectations. I believe that some of these new agents are going to be wonderful therapies for some people, and they're not going to be for everybody. Nothing's for everybody, especially in HCM. So I want to have realistic expectations on what we're looking at bringing to market soon with everybody's efforts, and we appreciate every single one of them, <laughs> but we need to go Cautiously, we have to worry about things, not only the clinical sense, but the financial sense. 
So we're in the middle of working with a group called ICER on pricing of this drug that might come up and other ones that may come behind well, it. Maybe before you talk about that, maybe we could just summarize real quick for the audience because many may not know what you know what we what the you know what the clinical trial with Mavicampton you know showed first. You know, sure. Let's talk about that. So let's talk about that, and then we can talk about the maybe get into transition into the right exactly. So so just so for those that don't know, you, you know this new negative inotropic drug was evaluated as we said in a big clinical trial that we completed a couple months ago called Explore, and what that showed was that it compared patients with obstructive HCM to Mavic. Some were given Mavicampton, and others were given continued on standard therapy of beta blocker or calcium channel blocker. So that's important because this trial of Explorer didn't compare Mavicampton to Norpace, didn't compare Mavicampton to surgery, didn't compare Mavicampton to alcohol ablation. And, and that's not the, and that's not a criticism. That's that's how these all these trials start. They start with the new right. That's exactly. So that, that's that, somewhere. That's not, not an aberration. That's exactly how it should be. First, yep. it's just the conclusions that we can draw at this point in time are limited because we're comparing a very potent negative inotropic drug to a less potent negative inotropic drug like beta blockers. And so what that showed then was what we you know kind of expected because of that, which was that um, more patients on Mavicampton you know, felt better gradients were reduced more in patients on Mavicampton than if, than if you were just taking a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker. Okay. So it was a, what we call a statistically positive trial in those terms. Okay. And by the way, the drug was studied, uh, you know, for that trial for a really short period of time when we're talking about the grand scheme of, of, of things in HCM, which was 30 weeks. So, so kind of coming back to the idea of there are limitations to what we can extrapolate from at this point about Mavicampton because we're just somewhat limited in, in terms of where we are in, 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 in our understanding of, the, of this drug. I'll mention one other thing and then I'll open up to Lisa to talk about, you know, broader points. Yeah, that because Mavicampton is a, a more potent negative inotrope, it decreases the contractility of the heart. There were a small number of patients in the, in the trial that had a decrease in their pump function of the heart, what we call again, the ejection fraction, that was below a level that, you know, we, we it sort of went below a level that we feel comfortable with. Um, that said, when dose adjustments were made, you know, that ejection fraction did come back up, okay? So it was a transient decrease for a short period of time within the confines of a well-controlled clinical trial. So we don't, you know, so, so in some ways, some, there's been some you know, points made about the potential for the drug to decrease ejection fraction in a way that could be ad adverse, but we don't really know the implications of that yet, okay? Um, I think that's a, a fair and balanced way of, of looking at it. Um, otherwise, the drug was fairly well tolerated by most patients. So it's a promising drug. 
right. was submitted to the FDA. Um, I can't believe that all of the brain trust and there's a lot of really amazing people working on this project would have submitted it if they did not feel that they were going to get to the next step, which is approval. But it hasn't happened yet. And it might have some tricky aspects to it in terms of prescribing you know, rules and, and follow up. And that's up to the FDA. And hopefully they're listening to us and they listen to the voice of the patient report and they listen to our PFDD and they heard what we want as a community. So we've done our part there. We've participated in the clinical trials. And now the next part is if it becomes available, is it really accessible? And we need to make sure that pricing is appropriate, that insurance companies understand. So this kind of pivots the HCMA off into a little bit different work advocating on behalf of the community, which is making sure payers understand our needs and that payers understand that we have a lot of healthcare burden and we can't pay a lot of money for something else when we're already paying a lot for other things. So there's, there's only so much to give. So we're trying to work to come up with fair pricing. We also want industry to come to the table and continue to work on, uh, on innovation and drug therapy and treatments and maybe someday even a cure. But we need to, so we need to be fair. We need to play nicely in the sandbox and it's complicated, but we need to advocate on behalf of patients and providers to make sure that we can get the right drugs to the right people at the right time. So hopefully as MAVA moves through the process, um, we'll learn some things. Everybody will use their voice to be heard and maybe we'll get some good pricing and another great option in the toolbox. So beyond that drug. You know, I'll just make one other point about that too, just before we move on, just one other quick point. You know, and I think your, your, your comments about over exuberance and, and taking our time with understanding, you know, more about a drug like this, like Mavicampton and its place in the treatment algorithm is really well received and important point. You know, on that note too, you know, we don't really know yet at all. We have some inferences, but we don't know. The inferences we do get from the explore trial is that the efficacy, the ability to improve symptoms and lower gradient with Mavicampton were not as high as what we see with alcohol ablation and surgery. Okay. So that's an important point. Okay. And also, we also have to frame this in a certain way, too. And this, I think, is going to be part of the discussion and conversation as we go forward if Mavicampton is approved. And some of this conversation will be impacted by cost, of course. But independent of cost, too, is the idea of patients' desire to have a one-time procedure like surgery or alcohol ablation and coming back to the concept of with that procedure coming off of medicines. Okay? And remember, the average age that a patient undergoes myectomy is usually early 50s. So we would be talking then about years and decades of being on a drug like Mavicampton as opposed to a one-time procedure like myectomy or alcohol ablation that would have as good or more efficacy at improving symptoms without the need to be on drug therapy afterwards. Of course, there's risks associated with those invasive procedures, but at expert HCM centers today, I think both alcohol ablation and surgical myectomy are done with low risk okay. and, high benefit, and high benefit. So I think there's a lot of conversations that we're going to be having as we go forward about how to best understand how to integrate, if it's approved, a new drug like Mavicampton.
So you brought up one of my critical concerns about the pricing comparison. Right. Um, so medical management gets you so far and there's, let's call it cheap drugs. Beta blockers are cheap. Uh, there are more expensive drugs. Norpace is more expensive. And then I would expect that Mavicampton brand new um, with a lot of R&D costs on it and a lot of expectations is going to be even more expensive than Norpace. But it's a drug for a very long period of time. Now, there's some data and some suggestion that maybe it isn't forever. Maybe it does something corrective and you can go off of it at some point. People are hypothesizing. We ain't seen that yet. So is this for life? And how much is that for life? So we, have, we still have a lot to learn there. So let's pivot off of all of Lisa's financial and logistics questions about access. And let's talk about the Redwood study. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what that agent is? And we'll try to wrap up quickly. I don't know that we're going to have a lot of time for Q&A today, guys, but we'll, we'll try. I can stay around. I'm not pressed. So if, you, if that's something you wouldn't show, I'm happy to be flexible there. So but anyways, uh, Redwood HCF. So we talked about Explorer. Now we got another, another name um, based on a, or a named after another clinical trial named after, in this case, a, a, a tree in California, Redwood. Um, so this is, this is now a clinical trial evaluating the next generation, what we call second generation form of Mavicampton. By the way, Mavicampton falls into the category called myosin inhibitors. That's the name of the class of drugs, myosin inhibitors. And so the second generation myosin inhibitor um, is made by a company called Cytokinetics, Cytokinetics. Um, actually, the myosin inhibitor drugs were first discovered at, at Cytokinetics, which is a San Francisco-based company, actually. Um, and then for a number of different reasons, myocardia spun off of Cytokinetics at some point in the, in the past to form um, a company, Myocardia, that developed the uh, Mavicampton. So, so Cytokinetics has a lot of experience that, for that reason in the development of, of these drugs, and, and we're the first to actually do it. And so their, their second generation myosin inhibitor is called CK274. It doesn't have a name yet. It's an initial at this point because we're still early in the stage. And there's some differences in, in how the drugs metabolized, you know, compared to Mavicampton. Whether that will be advantageous or, or, or not is unclear at this point. It's being studied early, in an early study called Redwood. And so that's, um, again, I think a point of enthusiasm and optimism that, you know, um, there's, you know, even more efforts going on here to, to refine potentially the efficacy and safety of these drugs through different preparations, possibly. So I think there's a lot of excitement centered around, around that idea. And that's what Redwood is really doing at the moment. So it's still early. It's a phase two study. And if that, I think, looks positive, like, it, like, like in all industry sort of sponsored studies, uh, there may be enthusiasm to continue with what, what it would be a phase three study, um, like, like Mavicampton was just tested with, with, with Explorer. So a lot more to come there. We're still early. So I'm going to actually be having some discussions with them in the coming weeks about some recruitment efforts as well. So we'll see a yep. bit more about that. And I'm sure we'll, we'll be doing another um, podcast with maybe that team to talk, to talk about the Redwood study 
So there's another patient that may be interested in, 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 in access to the, these type of drugs. If, if cytokinetics does move forward with a phase three study, you know, sometime in the next year or so um, before Mavicampton is approved, then, you know, there'll be, I'm sure you'll be letting people know about centers around the country that will be pr participating in that trial. And those patients could access that potentially. So Thank you for the segue to the brand new website. That'll be much easier to navigate. And with one little click and a couple of questions that you answer anonymously, it will tell you where all your clinical sites are and where you can go to join any clinical trial that you're interested in related to HCM with one very quick search tool. It'll, it'll find it for you. We're trying to make life really easy. So this is one thing that you're doing. So you're actually on the new website going to have the ability for patients to, to in one click or so, find out what clinical trials are going on, what those clinical trials are about. And so we have it on the website currently, but it's a little chunky and they've updated it and our new interface will make it easier. You give your age, your gender, answer a couple of questions about whether you're obstructed, non-obstructed, et cetera, whether you have comorbidities and it will populate all the studies that you're qualified for. Great. That'll, so, be, a great, that'll cool. be a great resource yeah. for patients. No we, we, got, we got a bunch of tricks up our sleeve. Wait till you see how slick we've become. Okay. So there's another drug company and we are going to actually be assisting them in the recruitment. Finally got our contract signed yesterday um, or approved yesterday with Imbria. Can you tell us a little bit about who Imbria is and what they're working on? Yeah, Im Im Imbria, um, by the way, just for full transparency, I'm the, 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 the chair of the steering committee for the cytokinetics redwood study um and i'm also involved in in in, in the uh the clinical trial that we're going to be talking about related to embrya when embrya is a small pharmaceutical company relatively small in terms of just overall size pharmaceutical company that's based actually in, in cambridge massachusetts um that has a, a a compound that they're investigating for its use as a way to improve symptoms in non-obstructive HCM. Uh -huh. And this compound is, is, is falls under a completely different category of drug of drug, which is called a metabolic metabolic modulator drug. Okay? And there's been different versions of metabolic modulators used in different forms of heart disease to help improve certain symptoms. This is a new one. Um, and, 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 and the way these in general work these drugs is they shift, they shift the energy utilization of the heart to a more efficient pathway, essentially, to make it really simple. And, and by doing that, you may help improve the ability of the heart to, for example, relax more efficiently, and then you'll get better filling. It may have effects on getting better blood flow to the heart muscle or the tissue or heart muscle level. So there's different ways that, that the improvement in energy efficiency that these drugs would promote may, may translate to a improvement in symptoms. And that's really important because as you know, we have even less available to help patients in the non-obstructive category here. Um, so this is for that reason, and I think an exciting opportunity um, to treat what is really a bigger unmet need for the disease in a way than obstructive HCM is. Okay, I missed one from our pre-conversation, Intresto and HCM. 
when Trusto is a drug that patients may know about because there's been a lot of attention about it, focused on it. There's even been advertisements about Entresto on a TV. A, a few yeah. of them, yes. Like about one every two minutes at night. Um, you know, advertising its benefit in non-HCM heart failure, okay? So it's been demonstrated through big studies in large number of patients to improve mortality or longevity in non-HCM forms of heart failure. And it's now, for that reason, kind of being applied in another clinical trial for treatment of non-obstructive HCM as well, okay? And so it has a different mechanism of action that helps potentially improve the structure of the heart muscle in a different way that could make patients feel better with non-obstructive HCM. And that clinical trial is currently ongoing. Um, and so we look forward to hopefully its completion and understanding if there could be a role in, in with Entresto and HCM. So that when we can steal from somebody else, but maybe get some labeled indication if we get a good trial, maybe. Okay, so we have BMS, we have cytokinetics, we have Imbria, Entresto, what's that, Novartis? No. Yeah. And Novartis, okay. Uh, uh, yes. Yes. And yeah. then there's another company out of... Um, uh, was it Japan? Uh, Korea. Korea. South Korea, yeah. South Korea. So I wanted to tell us a little bit about what that agent is. Yeah, there's a there's a company in South Korea called Celtrion that's developing, this initiative is very early, a different variation of a drug called Sebenzaline, Sebenzaline, which is a drug, and again, we're back now to an antiarrhythmic drug in the same category as Norpace. Um, that's actually been around for a while in terms of it's been approved and used in obstructive HCM, actually, in a number of different countries, including Japan, okay. where it's been demonstrated through studies to really have a more, a, a very, a, a, an effective uh, ability to decrease symptoms by lowering the gradient in obstructive HCM without the side effects that come along with Norpace, actually. So it may be another option in, in, in the treatment armamentarium for symptomatic obstructive HCM for that reason, but needs to undergo the usual strategy of clinical trial assessment. And I believe that company is looking forward to starting, I believe, a phase two study in the US with this drug soon. Yep, very good. So three, four years ago, we didn't talk much about drug companies and clinical trials and HCM. Right. It right. was, oh, that would be nice. And now we have all of these people coming to the table and there's some other therapeutics in other areas that we'll save for another podcast because this was an awful lot of, you know, well, chemistry of today. Yeah. <laughs> we did well, a lot of chemistry. We did. So what are you most hopeful about for future treatments in HCM, medically speaking, medical management? I think all these, I mean, I'm excited, you know, I have to say, and I, this is why I started the, this conversation about this aspect this way is that I'm, I'm really thrilled with the idea first that there is an enormous amount of interest now in, 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 in the pharmaceutical development world in HCM, 
Okay. Because it's that, you know, excitement, it's that focus from, you know, our major US and international pharmaceutical companies and HCM now that will, no matter what, continue to help provide us, you know, new innovations that will hopefully continue to improve upon what we have today, as we're starting to already see. So I think just the idea that there's interest in, in that from the pharmaceutical companies that's now actually translated to new drugs is itself, as you just were saying, huge, huge. And that probably as a broad concept has me most excited right now. So as all of this is moving forward, um, people are gonna see some different things out of HCMA. Um, not only are we going to be more engaged with the payer community, trying to get them to understand us, but we're also going to be more involved with our state legislatures because we need them to help us identify those who are at risk for HCM. And some of our upcoming initiatives are going to be on identifying the undiagnosed um, with some very simple, logical pathways to doing so. So we're gonna start these projects in the coming weeks and we have a lot of new partners on board with us. We are partnering with the American College of Cardiology on projects, the American Heart Association, Women Heart, the Heart Failure Society of America, the American Society of Echocardiography. We have a lot of new partners who are all focused on HCM. They have great infrastructure. They know their world. They don't know HCM so well. So we've been really happy to have these new partners on board to help us get this message out. Because if we finally have treatments that are specific to us, we need to make sure that they're deployed to the people who can really benefit most from them. So um, on that, I do have one or two quick little questions here I'm gonna go to, but I do have a, I have a meeting that I told them I'm gonna be a little late for. Um, so number one, Hans is saying hi. He's, I think he's a little off on his ears because he recalls flying to NIH to see your dad in the 90s. I think he's about six years late on what he posted at 99. Your dad was out of there in what, 94, 93. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so uh, he, I'm sorry, Hans, it was a little bit longer ago than you think, but uh, we will let, uh, Marty will let Barry know that Hans said hi. And Yep, I will. And Shani is saying hello to you, just so you know. You know who Shani is. Of course, hello. Okay, um, quick question for a clarification. Somebody was a little unclear on what the difference is between a beta blocker and an antiarrhythmic. Yeah, good question. So, yeah, and I understand how there may be some confusion there. There are drugs that have been developed that have specific properties to them that are, are clearly intended to affect the arrhythmic system of the heart, okay? To suppress, for example, atrial fibrillation, okay? And we talked about two of those, sodalol and, and norpace as an antiarrhythmic. Right. So th those are classified as antiarrhythmic drugs because the compositions of the drugs directly affect the electrical system in some way. Beta blockers um, do not specifically address the underlying electrical problems of the heart like antiarrhythmics do, but, but as a potential consequence of their mechanism of action, they sometimes can have an antiarrhythmic effect, an effect. 
maybe they decrease extra beats, maybe they help um, decrease um, a, a upper chamber rhythms, those kinds of things. Um, and so for that reason, we sometimes consider beta blockers to have improvement in antiarrhythmic effect, but they're not truly an antiarrhythmic drug in terms of classification. Okay, I think that clears it up. If they have any additional questions, they're more than happy to. They can put a comment sure. in and we can give them some more clarifying, clarifying information. Sorry, tongue tied today. Okay, we took a deep dive today. We talked all things med. Um, well, they, not all things, but the basics. We could potentially in the future dive into some of the complicated issues related to hypertension management, uh, hypercholesterolemia management on top of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We did not touch on those drugs today, but that's something we can do in the future. Um, and then we should probably dive into a conversation with some other professionals on uh, psychotropic medication and depression medications used, which are the best or the most effect efficacious in HCM patients or cardiac patients in general. And that would cover the majority of people with HCM who are you know, on other drugs other than you know, your baseline HCM treatment. So we'll cover those in future podcasts. Um, we have another podcast coming up. We'll be announcing the date shortly with Dr. Marin to introduce somebody new to his team. Do you want to give us a teaser on who, who you're going to introduce? Sure, sure. You know, we've been incredibly, you know, lucky and fortunate, you know, at it, it, it Tufts in Boston to, to have over the last 20 years um, really one of the, the great surgeons of, of all time for the myectomy, Hassan Rastegar. He's continuing to operate. He's still going, not implying that he's not. But um, we've also added um, to, to our um, service for that issue another surgeon whose name is Mike Robich. Um, he trained uh, in cardiac surgery at Cleveland Clinic, spent some time at Maine Medical uh, a few years and now is at Tufts um, uh, going to be helping us um, in that effort in the myectomy world by um, performing surgical myectomies in the coming months. He's already got a good experience with that at Cleveland Clinic and at Maine. So um, we're thrilled to have uh, Mike and his energy and enthusiasm for this operation and treating HCM patients uh, on our team now. And we look forward to introducing him. I look forward to getting the community involved with getting to know him and him getting to know them. And uh, I've already had a couple of good talks with him and I'm looking forward to bringing him onto the podcast. Uh, Sarah, you did mention that correctly. I did miss a class that we didn't touch and that's anticoagulants. Um, I did talk about this last night. That's why it was not on my mind. If you want to go back and look at the Big Barded Warrior Tour from last evening, um, Mark Link did a great job going over anticoagulation and AFib management. Um, the only thing I would add to that, which is apical aneurysms tend to also be treated with um, anticoagulants. So he doesn't discuss that particularly, but he does go into the different options for anticoagulation. So if you're on Facebook right now, just scroll right on down and then go into about the third talk and that's Mark Link. And you can listen to uh, an entire conversation on that, which goes quite nicely with Marty and I's last podcast on atrial fibrillation, taking the deep dive. Um, so eventually there's gonna be enough content on here that you'll all get honorary MDs in HCM. <laughs> that's right. Also, I'll say too that, um, you know, we should also consider 
at some point soon as maybe some more information becomes available to maybe take a deeper dive into this you know you know which is coming increasingly complex uh options for treatment of obstructive hcm you know we we of course touched on it we dove a little deep but we can go even deeper in trying to help clarify you know the 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 the, the, the strengths and limitations of the drugs and the procedures and you know how patients may be able to approach and think about that um, as these things become available. So that's also something we should consider. I will put that on the list for future podcast topics. We don't have any lack of things to talk about. It's like, okay, where are we going today? And we just dive in. HCM allows us the opportunity to, to dive into a lot of different pools. All right, Marty, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I hope your, your beautiful wife had a lovely Mother's Day and that your mom had a great Mother's Day. And um, our best to your dad. I hope you did but, too. <laughs> I, I did. I did. I, I will tell you what I posted on my Facebook page about Mother's Day different now you know my mom's passed my mother-in-law passed a year ago right before mother's day um i love being a mom i love the day to think about them but my heart donor was also a mom and she was a young lady who left this world too early so i think a lot about brandy's daughter on mother's day and all i know is she has a daughter someday i hope to meet that family but i think a lot about her on mother's day that melancholy i guess is the best word for it but it's it's just part of being a, do- a recipient. Yeah, yeah. feel that. So I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be a recipient, and I just get a little melancholy on Mother's Day now. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. I mean, I think it's important to talk about that and um, to give recognition and and so forth. So for you though, um, obviously special Mother's Day as always. And um, again, congratulations, and always happy to to join you. Um, It was a good conversation today, so uh, hopefully it was helpful. I think it was. Thank you very much, everybody on Facebook. We can. You're listening to Tales from the Heart, and we hope to have you on another, have you visit us on another episode. And if you want to get, well, when the new website comes out, there's going to be a landing page where all of the podcasts are going to be available. This, I believe, is our 26th podcast in the series. So um, we're really excited about that. If you have ideas or suggestions for topics, please drop them below. We'll be happy to take a look at those. And we bring Dr. Marin on about once a month, Dr. Lever on once a month, and we have opportunities for others coming up. And we have a very exciting podcast coming up for the end of June. We will be joined by author Michael Moss. And we're going to be discussing his new book, Hooked. Um, And those of you who don't know Michael's history with the HCMA, uh, he used to be a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And he wrote a very important article about HCM management back in the 90s, featuring my sister's uh, unfortunate mismanagement and and early death. Um, He's gone on to um, work for other papers and now he's a published author and he's going after the food industry and he's going to teach you what to look for. Did he win the Pulitzer Prize? He was nominated for Pulitzer for our article, but he didn't quite get there. He's he's truly one of the people who has changed my life now twice. Yeah, you don't want to miss that. That's great. He's it's gonna uh, be fun. Yeah, he's 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 really a superstar. That that'll be great. I'm glad you got him, and I'm glad he's gonna be able to share that. That's great. Absolutely. So look forward to the advertisements on that one. We'll get you all on board, but it'll be a great podcast. Marty, thanks again, and thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. 
For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today.